Come on, you can clap for that. So good. I invite you to be seated. You know, I love these nights when I have a sense that married couples are going to be fighting on the way home. You know why I say that? Because somebody on the way home is going to say this to their spouse. I can't believe you emailed the pastor about my control issues and you didn't tell me that you were going to do it. And then he told somebody about it that I don't even know. And they got up in front of the church and talked about it in front of everybody, right? So just so you know, that never happens, right? It's just that God is always in your conversations. And he's always observing everything that you need. And he's always ever present in your life. So if right now you're angry at your husband or your wife because they violated some confidence, you can just take that up with God because that's on him. Right? When we gather together in corporate times like this, we believe that there are going to be times where God whispers to somebody else, sometimes you don't even know that person, something about you're struggling with, and then prompts them to get up and talk about it in these settings because it gives you an opportunity to give that to God and to be set free. That's what this whole entire series that we're in is all about, Break the Yoke, and I'm excited. We're in our second week uh, of this series, and we're trusting that every Saturday that we gather together, especially during this series, that you're going to come to moments where you feel like that God is setting you free from some things. I also felt, I just love during our time praying for the Galligans as they're getting ready to move to Colorado, and, and uh, at one point as we were praying, I kind of opened my eyes and was just looking around at their family, and, uh, and I think it was uh, Dave Kamornick's hand was on their, their littlest, was it your hand was on his shoulder? And uh, I don't know if you saw it or not, if you were watching, but the whole time we were praying, you know, the, their littlest was pointing right up at Dave like this. <laughs> and I'm not sure what he was thinking. Was he saying, I don't know you, get your hand off me? But that's not what his face said. His face said something else. His face said, I'm little and I don't understand what you're saying, but I know you're loving on my family right now, right? That's what his face, the whole time he was just pointing right at you. I was like, come on, such a powerful picture, such a powerful picture. Well, if you've been a part of City Life for any amount of time, you know that some big things happened for us this week. That, uh, come on. We're going to get into the second part of this series in a little while, but we, we couldn't come to this moment without talking a little bit uh, about what took place this week on Wednesday night, an historic moment for this property uh, that was set aside by God in the 1950s, set aside uh, to be a place of worship, to be a church, uh, and the Warwick Baptist Mission was formed that soon uh, became the North Riverside Baptist Church. And so this building, the cornerstone right outside those doors, you should look at it tonight, was placed there in 1960. 1960. And so here we are uh, in March of 2019, and they voted on Wednesday night as a congregation to gift this property uh, and everything that goes along with it to uh, the City Life Church so that we could carry on the sacred work that's supposed to happen at this location here in this city. They also decided, which we did not know uh, was forthcoming, but they also voted as a congregation that they're going to hold their last service uh, as a church uh, at the end of April. I'm going to come to that service. I would invite many of you to join us uh, on that Sunday morning as well because we want to honor them and celebrate them as they come to an era. And I think that one of the reasons why they made that decision 
to close their doors. Originally, we had talked about them continuing to rent space, which we were excited about that idea. But I think just God speaking to their hearts, they came to the realization that it was time for just a true passing of the baton, that they've carried it well, and now they're looking at us and saying, you better carry it well too. And so I've been praying and talking, and even in my conversations with you, this is not a gift to this church. It's a responsibility. It's a responsibility, and we're going to carry it well. I was praying this week just knowing that we were going to be coming to this moment tonight in the service, and, uh, uh, and I was reminded of the video that we showed when we moved into this building three years ago. It was a spontaneous prayer uh, that was prayed at our last service at our prior location over off of Harpersville Road. Uh, Jordan Johnson, JJ, found that prayer and just uh, it was his idea that he took that and creatively overlaid it with some video of this property. And I listened to that today. We're going to watch it now. It's not very long. But I thought the prayer that we prayed moving in here is really the prayer that we're praying as we move forward. So let's watch this together. Father, we know that in that first weekend of December in 2008, this property, this building at 28 Harpersville Road became your provision to us. Marriages have been restored in this building. People have taken their first spiritual breath in this building. People have been baptized in your Holy Spirit in this building. People have served in ministry for the first time in this building. People have been challenged and held to account in this building. Children have heard the message of the gospel for the first time in this building. Praise has flown from people's hearts for the first time in this building. Hands have been raised and knees have bent. Vows have been made and prayers have been offered in this building. And we will always cherish this place, Father, because it was your gift to us. It was your provision to us. But part of your gift to us, we know, and part of your provision for us in this building was to hear your voice. And that voice has been one that calls us to a different place. And so we say tonight, God, thank you for everything that's happened here. But we also say, you will do all of those things again at 311 Selton Road. Not because we're arrogant, not because we're entitled, because they are the promises that you have spoken over your church and over your children. And we go there, God, with great expectancy because that's who you are. Ephesians 3.20, that you're going to always do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. So, Father, we say we cannot wait for 5 o'clock next Saturday. We cannot wait. For many people, it's going to be 4.30 on Saturday. It is the beginning of a new season that is a new place. And all that's going to be done for your glory in that place, we say right now in this moment, yes and amen. We consecrate our heart to you, to your purposes, to your plans, to your will. And may it be, God, that we walk through this life with the friends that we can touch and the friends that we can only hear that we call questions. And may one day when we breathe our last, 
step into eternity, that we're going to hear from you just a simple phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Christ's name, come on and everybody sit together. Amen. Come on. When we, when we came here three years ago, uh, we signed a 10-year lease with a 10-year right to renew, which was our commitment that this was going to be the, the home of the Newport News campus for, at least in our minds, forever. And we knew that there was the possibility that at some point in the far future, there could be an opportunity with our relationship with North Riverside Baptist Church that, that, uh, that this property could come to us. But, there's, but none of us, none of us thought that it would, be within, it would be within three years. And so we're just honored and privileged uh, that God would look at us and say, we're picking you to, to keep this sacred work moving forward. That this is going to be a place where we proclaim the gospel, where we grow disciples, and where we serve our city. That's what North Riverside Baptist Church has been doing for decades, and that's what the City Life Church is going to be doing for decades to come. We're excited about the partners they are going to be coming with us. We're not ready to talk about that with, with everyone yet, but there's already a church that's going to be coming in here on Sunday morning. There's churches that are going to be renting office space and doing all their additional services here. There's a church plant that's already happening in the chapel. They're going to be continuing year. So even right out of the gate, there's going to be four churches that are meeting here. And that's our heart. We want to fill this place up, right? Come on. We want to fill it up. We want to fill it up until we're in each other's way. I want to read these verses. Ed Lilly sent this to me this morning. I don't know if Ed's here, but this is such a great text that he sent. Uh, because a lot of people have been reaching out to us and just talking about how they're excited about what's happening, but at the same time, their hearts are sad uh, for this, the place that NRBC finds themselves in. And Ed sent me these verses, and I, I, they're, just, they're just perfect. Let me, let me read this. This is out of Ezra chapter 3, 11 to 13. Ezra is the contemporary of Nehemiah. When, when God was rebuilding Jerusalem, right, that, that Israel had just fallen as a nation, everyone had been led away into captivity, and he, and he sent a group of people back to begin to rebuild. And, and, and uh, Nehemiah was the governor administrator, Ezra was the prophet priest, and they worked together uh, to begin to rebuild the city and the temple. So verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, it says, With praise and thanks they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple, right? That's the temple of Solomon wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation, right? They wept because they saw what it wasn't relative to what it used to be. So there's this massive crowd of people at this time of dedication, and all the older people are weeping and crying because of what it's not. And listen to what it says. The others, however, were shouting for joy, the joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in a distance. It's powerful, isn't it? There was a generation that was dancing and excited and celebrating, and then there was a generation that was mourning because of what was coming to an end. And so, right, this text is the story of what's happening right here at 311 Selden Road. And what I would say to you and what we're saying to each other, it is okay to both weep and mourn and dance and celebrate 
at the same time. Because both honor God. And so we want to step into a place of appreciating the emotional journey that NRBC is on. We want to step into a place of honoring them in their place of grieving for what's coming to an end because in doing so, we're honoring what God has done here for decades. But at the same time, we're going to dance. At the same time, we're going to celebrate. At the same time, we're going to shout for joy because one does not dishonor the other. It's a powerful story, isn't it? Which is why God put it there. There's times and seasons in our lives where the people that are mourning, they're not dishonoring the people that are celebrating. The people that are celebrating are not dishonoring the people that are mourning because both of them are acknowledging the work that God is doing. The baton passing from one generation to another. We're going to close our service at the very end of the service to just to pray in uh, to this moment that we're in. Uh, as things begin to unfold here, we'll be talking with you about it more. Uh, but as of now, the, the, uh, the date that's set is, the, the, is May 1st that this property uh, will come to us by way of a uh, possession. And so we'll be talking with you about what that's going to mean for us, uh, what our plans are here for this facility uh, as that unfolds in the weeks and the months to come. So we just want to ask you to keep praying for us, praying with us, uh, standing with us, and, uh, and we're glad that you're here to be a part of this story uh, for this time and for this season. Well, if you've noticed also, just switching gears on you a little bit, uh, we've, we've kind of tweaked our order of service, if you've noticed that. Maybe if you're newer here, you've not noticed it. But one of the reasons why we're experimenting with the order of service is because we're trying to take the extended worship time and put it together with the time of preaching, where before in our service there was a, a bigger separation Uh, And so we actually find that collectively there's more time that we're spending in worship between the two sets, but all of us have a collective sense that just the flow from that second set right into the flow of the time of ministry, uh, that this is going to be part of what we do going forward. There'll be exceptions to that on certain weeks, like the first weekend of the month when we do communion, when we do the Lord's Supper. It's going to make more sense for us to have a longer worship set on the front end. But just in case you've been wondering why that is, what the motivation is behind it, why we're doing it, uh, is that we just really believe we want to create a bigger sense of connection and flow between that time of worship and between the time of the ministering uh, of the word. All right, well, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah. It's also going to be on the screen for you. I want to do a little bit of a recap because the foundation is important uh, for this series. So each week we're going to touch a little bit uh, on these concepts and these ideas just so that you can stay connected to them because they create the context for the text that we're going to be teaching Uh, along the way. Now this is an interesting verse because if you're like me, you've grown up being taught this phrase, the anointing breaks the yoke. The anointing breaks the yoke. And And the reason why that phrase has been popularized is because Isaiah 10, 27, out of the King James, says that. It says, and it it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off off thy shoulder. So again, this is speaking of the nation of Israel and and that this is an empire has come in and conquered Israel. And the idea of them being conquered is this idea of them being taken away into captivity, which is the yoke that's on their shoulder. But then it says, and his yoke from off thy neck 
in, in, in his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing, right? So this is the verse that gives us the phrase, it's the anointing that breaks the yoke, which has been the subject of countless sermons throughout the years. But when you look at the New American Standard, which is a little bit more of an exact translation, you get a really different phrase that brings us to a very different conclusion. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Now, we broke all of that down in the Hebrew last week. If you want to check that out, you can get it through the podcast. Also, the notes are always online uh, to give us all our textual references. The idea of the anointing breaking the yoke is not a, a wrong idea. It's all throughout Scripture. It's just not supposed to be connected to this verse in the Bible. And this is one of the problems if we take a verse and it's given to us and taught to us in a way that it wasn't intended because it, it, it overshadows another meaning that we really need to understand. And this idea of fatness is important to us. Luke 4.18, Acts 10.38, these are all things that talk about how the anointing breaks the yoke, meaning that there are times where God steps in supernaturally, like I believe that he's already done for some of you tonight with control issues, that when Shanika came up and shared that, and some of you probably have already experienced a sense of relief. That's a great example of how the anointing of God's presence can come in and set you free. But there are other times, like in Isaiah 10, where God doesn't come in and to set you free supernaturally. He sets you on a course of discipleship that over time, you begin to grow as a devoted follower of Christ, and that growth begins to shatter the things that hold you back. This idea of fatness is about spiritual strength. This idea of fatness means that the yokes that used to hold you back don't fit on you anymore. It's why we're using the musk ox, come on, for all of our imagery, because you're never going to see anybody try to put a yoke on a musk ox because they don't make yokes big enough for them. And this series is about you being committed and devoted as a follower of Christ to grow to such a degree that when circumstances from your past, when the devil himself or even other people that want to take advantage of you come and try to put a yoke on you, they look at the yoke and they look at you and they say the same thing that they would say to a musk ox, this is never going to fit. How much time, listen to this thought, how much time have we spent in our lives regarding certain struggles, pleading with God to deliver us when his response to us all along has been, grow out of it. There are times where we come and we ask for deliverance and we're going to keep coming and asking for deliverance. That's part of who we are as a church. But some of those times when we come, God's response back to you is, I'm not going to set you free because I want you to grow out of it. Because it's in growing out of it, oftentimes, that you make it impossible for that thing to come back to you. Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's a hallmark verse for us as a church. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The Lord, our God, has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them. We're not accountable for the secrets that God does not reveal to us. I love this text. But we are and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. I believe there will never be the fullness of Psalm 27, 13 realized in our lives until we embrace a Deuteronomy 29, 29 life and become Isaiah 10, 27 fat. 
There is goodness that God is going to bestow upon us that's born out of his grace simply because he loves us. But then there is also goodness and liberty and freedom that's only going to come to us as we grow. And the only way we're going to grow, listen, is if we are willing to walk in obedience to the things that God has already made known to us are true. He does not ask and expect us to walk in obedience to the things that we don't know about. But to the things we do, to the things that we would say that are in this book that we believe to be true, there is an expectation that God has of us that we make an effort to walk in it. Is that effort in and of itself still dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely it is. But it still requires discipline on our behalf. So let's talk about Balaam. Interesting fellow in the Bible. His life and his story, I think, are going to serve as a great lesson for us as we enter in and move forward in this series about specifically stewardship and generosity and how these two pathways that we teach as a church are oftentimes two of the pathways that are missing from us. The 12 pathways are like the spiritual fatty foods we talked about last week that help us to grow as followers of Christ. So I'm going to start reading in Numbers 22. Let me pick up with verse 4. Numbers 22. I'm going to read from 4 down to 13. It just kind of sets up the story for us. It says, The king of Moab said to the elders of Midian, This mob will devour everything in sight like an ox devours grass in the field. Now this is the nation of Israel. They're on the move. They've been set free from Egypt. They're making their way to the promised land. And then here's a foreign nation as they're traveling through that country is saying, hey, we better do something or this growing nation is going to devour us. So Balak, the king of Moab, sent messengers to call Balaam, the son of Beor who was living in his native land of Pethor, near the Euphrates River. Now this is the message the king sent to Balaam. Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I will be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. Listen to what he says about Balaam. I know that blessings fall on any people you bless and curses fall on any people that you curse. Now Balak's messengers, who were elders of Moab and Midian, set out with money to pay Balaam to place a curse on Israel. They went to Balaam and delivered Balak's message to him. Stay here overnight, Balaam said, and in the morning I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. Now that night God came to Balaam and asked him, who are these men that are visiting you? When God asks us a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. He just wants to make sure that we know the answer that he wants us to see. Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me this message. Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me. Then perhaps I will be able to stand up to them and drive them from the land. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and told Balak's officials, go home. The Lord will not let me go with you. Now, I'm going to pick up in verse 21 in just a minute, but I, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation 
for what we see when we get to verse 21. You have to remember that in this day and time and in this part of the world, that there was a bartering culture that drove all financial transactions. And in many parts of the world, bartering is still the norm. Now, for me, I don't like bartering. When I go into a store, I want to know what the price is. I don't really want to interact with people about what it should cost because that makes me uncomfortable because my personality, I'm naturally introverted. But when you go on an emissions trip and you go into a marketplace, you better be prepared to barter. Because if you don't barter, you're insulting the people that are there. There's something about the contest. There's something about the challenge. There's something about a relationship that begins to form as you begin to engage in this with each other. You go on these missions trips, and there's going to be opportunities for you to do that. If you call this your church home, if you've never been on a foreign missions trip, I'm telling you, it will alter your life forever. But part of it, for me, it's guilt. Because even if you have a modest standing, a status, a standard of living here in America, you're one of the wealthiest people of the world by comparison. So, so for me, there's just, right, I, you go into these third world countries and you're there on a mission trip and you go into the marketplace and the expectation is that you're going to barter, but then at some point you realize, I'm bartering with someone who has nothing relative to me. I have everything and I'm supposed to make them take less, right? But if you don't, it's an insult. If you don't, you're saying something about their culture. So you got to step into those moments. And if you're like me, if you don't like to do it, then make sure you go into the marketplace with somebody else and you let them do it for you. I want one of that. You do that what you do. I'll pay whatever it is when it comes out. you got to remember, this is part of the context of what's happening here. Balaam knows that there is a delegation that's being sent and money is being offered, but it's just the beginning of the dance. And the king knows that there's no way that Balaam is going to accept whatever is being initially offered, that he's going to have to send more delegations, and he's going to have to up the price, and there's going to be this little bit of a dance as they negotiate what the final price is going to be. That's the context that we're given here. It's important that we understand that context because it helps us to understand, I believe, what is often a mystery when it comes to what God does and what he says later in verse 21. See, God says to him, don't go with them. You cannot curse a people that I've already blessed. Verse 21. So the next morning, Balaam got up and saddled his donkey. Now, why is that? Because if we back up to verse 20, it says, That night God came to Balaam and told him, Since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. Now, we don't have for the sake of time to read all the intervening verses here, but what happens is, right, that that, that group of emissaries, they leave, and the king, right, it's, they know. It's a, it's a negotiation. He sends another group. These elders are, 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 are more important. These are, are more highly esteemed people. More money is sent. They stay again another night, and this time God says to Balaam, I want you to go. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey. He started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent an angel of the Lord to stand on the road. Right? So when you're reading the story, you're like, what? God, you told him to go, right? This is like being married. We're trying to do the right thing. We're just confused, right? All right, just making sure you're out there. 
Balaam says to himself, I'm only here because you told me that I should go. And now you're angry at me that I'm doing what you asked. See, I think the reason why God is angry with Balaam, because I think Balaam thinks that he's now bartering with God. I think Balaam is leaving because his mindset and his mentality is that it's all a negotiation. I'm negotiating with them, and I'm negotiating with him. Because in the end, I'm only concerned about what's in it for me. And for me, it could be an opportunity to receive great wealth. And I think God is angry with Balaam because Balaam is not doing what God told him to do because God told him not just to go, but he also said, I want you to go, but I only want you to do what I tell you to do. Why is that phrase in there? Because it's God saying to Balaam, Balaam, I'm not negotiating with you. There's no bargain here. You are just going to do what I say. It's the same conversation we have with our children when they're young. This is not a negotiation. There is obedience and obedience alone. So God steps in. He sends an angel. He's mad at Balaam. Now listen to what he does. He sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road and to block his way. And as Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey, I love the story, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, right? And the donkey's like, I don't want any of that. The donkey bolted off the road and into a field. But Balaam beat it, and it turned back on the right. So you got Balaam riding on this donkey. All of a sudden, the donkey takes off, right? Balaam's just bouncing along. He starts whipping this donkey, pulling on the reins to get it back on the path. The angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tries to square. So, so, so right, the imagery is, here's the angel. The donkey sprints off, Balaam beats it, right? And it goes around the angel and gets back on the path. So the angel has to reposition himself down the road. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tries to squeeze by and it crushes Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam, he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved farther down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time when the donkey saw the angel, it laid down under Balaam. And in a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. You gotta love verse 28. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. Yeah, this is in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. What have I done to you that deserves you beating me three times? Now verse 29 is even funnier to me than verse 28. Because Balaam doesn't say, 
Are you talking? <laughs> Balaam enters into a conversation with an animal as if it's his friend. Listen to what he said, verse 29. You have made me look like a fool. No, you look like a fool because you're talking to an animal and pretending that you can hear it. But he can't. You have made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. Now, these are not good words because somebody there does have a sword and somebody is about to die. Listen, the donkey says, I'm the same donkey that you've ridden all your life. Have I ever done anything like this before? Balaam says, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. And Balaam bowed his head, and he fell face down on the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey those three times? The angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and, shield, and, and, and shied away. Otherwise, listen to what it says. Otherwise, I would have certainly killed you by now and spared the donkey. You see, sometimes the people that are frustrating you are saving you. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way, and I will return home if you are against my going. But the angel of the Lord told, told Balaam, go with these men. Listen to what it says. But say only what I tell you to say. Why is that repeated? Because God is trying to let Balaam know this is not a negotiation. I'm not bartering with you about what you're going to do or not going to do so you can be enriched by the circumstance and the situation. And that's how you came out here with that mindset and with that mentality. And, and, it, and it almost cost him his life. This is important for us. Because there's a seriousness to us trying to negotiate our way out of the things that God has said, you will and you must do this and that. Are there times when God negotiates? Yes, there are. And there's lots of stories in the Bible. But at the point where we realize that God is saying the negotiation is over and now it's time for you to obey, we must walk in that obedience. Now, this is one of the things that's interesting about this story, that Balaam is a prophet in the order of Baru. He was a Baru prophet, which was a Mesopotamian order of priests and prophets. Listen to what it says. The irony is that Balaam is supposed to discern the will of God through the pagan practice of observing the behaviors of animals. Yet here in the story, the animal is more spiritually sensitive than the prophet. One of the specialties of the, the, the Baru prophets is, is that they would observe animals, their behavior, and, 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 and that they would determine or get an answer for the person that was paying for them what they were supposed to do. 
It's part of the irony of the story here is that, is, that, is that here is an animal, right? He's the one that's supposed to be able to observe the animal to know what's supposed to be doing, but yet the animal is more spiritually sensitive than he is himself. Why is that important? Because God is trying to let us know that, that even though this man has a reputation of blessing and cursing, whatever truth has come by what he has said has nothing to do with some sense of magic that he practices. It only comes because it serves God's will. Now, this story is also important, I believe, to remind us that the supernatural realm is real and that there are forces at work in this world that are not of God, that are the forces of darkness. And I think this story is also in here because God is saying to the world, do not play with supernatural things that are not based in Christ because there is a reality to those things and there's a danger to it. God never negotiates truth or principles that lead to compromise. This is an important story for us, especially because of the vote that took place this week because we must never forget this building is not being given to us by God to enrich us. This building is being given by God to us so we can serve Him. This is provision for His vision that He has for this city. And we have a responsibility to be found faithful in it. Joshua chapter 13. We've moved forward far in history. The Israelites have now occupied the promised land. The story of Jericho is far behind them. The land has been divided up by lot, by tribe, in the nation of Israel. And now here we are in in, in Joshua, and it's telling us which parts of the promised land are going to be allotted to which tribe. I'm going to read from chapter 13. I'm going to read verse 15, and I'm going to read verse 22. Verse 15, it says, Moses had assigned the following area to the clans of the tribe of Reuben. So then it goes on to describe geographically the area of the promised land that Reuben was responsible for in his tribe and his people, right? And every tribe was tasked with driving out the people that lived there. Every tribe had to take possession of the land that was allotted to them. And sometimes they would work together with the tribes that, were, that shared their border. Sometimes other tribes would come and help. There was a collective effort, but there was also an individual responsibility that they each had to walk in. Now listen to verse 22. The Israelites had also killed Balaam, son of Beor. And listen to what we find in Joshua that it says about Balaam, who used magic to tell the future. This is important to us. It's important that we always understand the Bible in light of itself because what we find here in Joshua is an important context for what we find in Numbers. That This was not one of God's prophets. This was not a man of God. He had a reputation for being a man of God, but right, this is, this is sometimes the deception that we walk in. We create a perception that we're one thing, but on the inside, we're something else. And if you live a life of duplicity, I'm telling you, it always ends badly. The Israelites had also killed Balaam, son of Baor who used magic to tell the future. 
I shared this statement with you last week, and I'm going to share it with you again now. Grace does not displace the consequential nature of obedience. Grace does not displace the consequential nature of obedience. Grace sees us into heaven. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's all based on what Jesus did on the cross. We believe that as a church wholeheartedly. That's a non-negotiable for us. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, heaven is promised to you. It's promised to you. And eternity is waiting for you. But what happens to you between now and then has a lot to do with choices that you make. With choices that you make. The grace that brings us into heaven. Listen to me. The grace that brings us into heaven is not now therefore a permission slip for you and I to do whatever we want without consequence in this temporal world. You can't sin your way out of heaven. I don't believe that you can. I don't, you can't sin your way out of heaven because God's grace is that big. But you can send yourself into a whole lot of mess and muck on your way there. And we want to be a church that challenges you to walk in obedience to the things that you would say, Fred, I believe those things are true. And I'm sharing all of this in relation to stewardship and generosity. And this was even before we knew the building might come to us. This was my plan for this season and this time and how God has aligned those things together, right? This is just what he does. But I'm focusing on stewardship and generosity because can I just tell you as a pastor, this is these are two of the areas that I find people barter with God more than anything else. They barter with God. They barter with Him. That many of you believe in this idea of stewardship that everything that you have belongs to God. You believe in this idea of generosity, these two pathways, two of the 12 that we teach and preach here. You believe that generosity means that part of his plan is that you're supposed to give a portion of that away. And in this series, we're going to talk about how God speaks to that specifically. And what I would say to you tonight is stop. if you believe those things, stop bartering with God. Stop negotiating with him. And walk in the revelation of what you know to be true because Deuteronomy 29, 29 might be in the Old Testament, but the principle carries forward for all of time. We are responsible to walk in obedience to what God has made known to us. We are responsible to walk in obedience to what God has made known to us. Trusting and believing that by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us, he's going to enable us to do it without regret, with passion and joy, not with reluctance. It's one of the reasons why in the New Testament, Paul says, right, to be a cheerful giver. He's not saying if you're not cheerful, don't give. He's saying be cheerful, be cheerful, because we have the opportunity and the privilege and the pleasure to be a part of what God is doing in this world. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So I ask you again, how much time have we spent in our lives regarding certain struggles, pleading with God to deliver us when his response to us all along has been, grow out of it. Listen to these verses. Come on, the Bible is so rich. Isaiah 29, one through four. It says, what sorrow awaits Ariel, not from, not from Disney, 
What sorrow awaits Ariel, this word in the English language rhymes with the Hebrew word for altar. So it's, it's poetic language that's saying what sorrow awaits for the people of the altar, the city of David. Year after year you celebrate your feasts, yet I will bring disaster upon you, it says. And there will be much weeping and sorrow, for Jerusalem will become what her name Ariel means, an altar covered with blood. Encouraging words from God today from the City Life Church. See what it says. God says, I will be your enemy, surrounding Jerusalem and attacking its walls, and I will build siege towers and destroy it. But listen to, oh, come on, verse 4. And then, deep from the earth you will speak. From low in the dust your words will come. Your voice will whisper from the ground like a ghost conjured up from the grave. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a people that are becoming spiritually fat again. And one of the things that God does for us because he loves us is that he will take us to whatever place that we need to go to for us to recognize our need for him. He will allow yokes of oppression to come upon us because of his grace because he wants us to experience what it's like for us to be spiritually hungry again, to find our footing again, and to begin to grow and to become spiritually fat so that that yoke begins to shatter off of our necks. And in that experience, something is supposed to happen to us where we look back over our situation and say, I'm never going back there. I never want that yoke to fit me again. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, wherever people are tonight, especially when it comes, becomes, comes to stewardship and generosity, if these are new ideas for them and they don't even know if they believe them to be true, then I pray that in this series that that's going to be their revelation. It's a journey of questioning that you love for people to enter into, a, a, a journey of discussion with your spirit to figure out what they even believe about these things. But for others, oh God, as I look around this room on Saturday nights, week after week, I know where most of these people stand when it comes to stewardship and generosity. They already believe it to be true. They already know the principles that you're asking them to live by and walk in. And I pray for the people right now that have been bartering and negotiating with you for some for years, that they would come to a place in this series where they would say yes and amen to everything that they believe to be true, especially about stewardship and generosity. And they would just start to get spiritually fat. And things that have been holding them back would just begin to shatter as they grow in you. Come on, in Jesus' name, let's worship together.